Thank you, praise team. That was, that was wonderful. That was powerful. So we don't even need a sermon now, right? Oh, you're getting a sermon. All right, Acts chapter 4. We're going to jump into this uh, this morning. We're continuing on. This is week 7 of this series. We're going through about the end of July, working through Acts. And we're really only talking about the first six chapters because you're going to see kind of a, a switching of gears when, it, when we hit that time where Stephen is actually uh, stoned to death. We'll get, we'll get into that. That's actually chapter 7. You'll see kind of a switching of gears in the book of Acts. So uh, we'll pick that up at the beginning of next year. But we're tracking through this. Now, Everyone that's going through one of our discipleship groups that have launched, we've had four discipleship groups that have launched. I know some of you, you're looking at your watch and saying, oh, it didn't take him 30 seconds in that sermon to bring up discipleship group again. Now he's going to ask us to sign up for one. You are right. So we'll be launching a new one in June. So we want you to sign up for it and to get into it. But the first lesson, the first week, when we're walking through a life in the Holy Spirit, we challenge everyone to write out, write scripted, write out a prayer that does two things. The first thing the prayer does is it says, is there any way in me, Lord, is there any way that's hampering me or holding me back? Is there any barrier? Is there any sin in me that's preventing me from really seeing you or being used by you? That's the first half of the prayer. The second half of the prayer is, Lord, today I'm available. I'm open to be used by you in any way you want to use me. It's a 30-second prayer that we encourage everyone under discipleship is to wake up every single morning before your feet hit the floor and pray that prayer. Do you know that really in studying the book of Acts in the last several weeks, you're seeing the need for that prayer. You're seeing how that prayer plays out. Because remember I told you the great theme of the book of Acts is the coming of Christian power and its building of the Christian church. And what is that Christian power? What is it, right? It's the Holy Spirit. And the building of the church happens through the manifestation of that Holy Spirit in the life of who? Have you been paying attention? Who? You tell me. The believers. That's right. It's you and I, right? And we see it in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit didn't just be a one-man show and went out and did everything, and the disciples were like, oh, cool. They were actively participating, participants in this as the Holy Spirit worked in and through their life. That's why we wake up every morning and say, if there be any barrier in me, reveal it to me, Lord, that I might deal with that. And then, Lord, I'm available today to be used by you. You could start praying a prayer like that. 30-second prayer every morning before you get out of bed, before your feet hit the floor. Or you can sign up for a discipleship class in June, right? And really get it honed in, and we'll work through that. We're going to look at this passage this morning, and I want to highlight just a couple things that are in this passage. It's 12 verses. There could be a dozen sermons just on this passage that go different ways, that share different aspects. So I'm just giving you one, which means it's probably a pretty good idea for you to take this passage into your personal devotion time this week and dig through it even more. So let's take a look at it. And I think you're awake now and you're rolling this morning. So um, you got a little part at the end of the passage. We'll see how you do on your part. All right, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees, remember those are some religious leaders, they confronted him, them. They were incensed that the apostles were teaching the people and announcing that the resurrection of the dead was happening because of Jesus. 
they seized Peter and John and they put them into prison until the next day. It was already evening. Many who heard the word became believers and their number grew to about 5,000. The next day, the leaders, elders, the legal experts gathered in Jerusalem, along with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others from the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and asked, by what power or in what name did you do this? Then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answered, leaders of the people and elders, are we being examined today because of something good was done for a sick person, a good deed that healed him? Remember when we talked about them healing the, the man at the beautiful gates. So that's what they're referring to. If so, then you and all the people of Israel need to know that this man stands healthy because, before you because of the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. He has become the cornerstone. Salvation can be found in no one else throughout the whole world. No other name has been given among humans through which we must be saved. The word of God for the people of God. Hey, that's pretty good. Clay, I heard you loud and clear there. So extra bonus points for you. Gold star. So let's jump into this. And I want to highlight a couple things that are happening in this passage that I, in some way they actually play in with us today, even though it, it, might, it might look a, a little bit different culturally, but it still plays in. And this is also an opening to something we're going to see for the rest of the book of Acts, persecution. We're going to see this shows up in, John, or excuse me, in Acts 4, and it stays prevalent all the way to Acts 28. So we don't see it before, not quite like this. Now you might be saying, wait a second, Tom, I think there was persecution. Remember the disciples, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They went out and preached in other languages, languages they didn't even know, right? They just preached in these languages, you know, like my friend Diana's here. She's Honduran, and every once in a while I send her a text, and I try to put it in Spanish like I know exactly what I'm talking about. She knows I don't, right? So <laughs> she just humors me. Um, but the disciples were actually doing that, speaking in other languages, right? And what did some of the people that saw this and heard this say to them? Oh, don't take these guys seriously. They're drunk. <laughs> Peter came up and said, hey, we're not drunk. It's 9 in the morning, right? Which I understand in our modern-day American culture, you'd be like, 9 in the morning? What's that? That's not, that doesn't stop a lot of people. But apparently it did in Bible times. So, and so uh, Peter says, no, nah, we're, not, we're not drunk. We're, we're preaching on the Spirit here. Listen, that's just simple name-calling. Like no disciple in the, in the book of Acts would put that in the persecution category. They would just say that's just kind of how it goes. It's par for the course, right? But we're going to start to see persecution that has to do with some serious action that shows up here. And we just read about it there as well, thrown into prison. So the question prompts then, what does persecution in the New Testament look like? What does that look like? Because as Christians, we sometimes like to use the phrase, I just feel like I'm being persecuted. I'm being persecuted, right? Sometimes we use it for things like, you know, like, damn, everybody in the family's sick this week. We've got a flu or some bug. We just feel like we're being persecuted, right? We use it in different ways. Man, I got like seven red lights today, you know? I feel like this is just an attack from the devil, you know? Or we, you know, we talk in different terms this way. What does persecution, though, in the New Testament actually look like in the book of Acts? What does it look like? Well, we get our taste of it. We get the introduction to it. Take a look again at Acts 4, 2. 
they were incensed that the apostles were teaching the people and announcing the resurrection of the dead was happening because of Jesus. They seized Peter and John. What they do? They threw him into prison, right? Now, who is they? This is religious leaders here, right? So they threw Jesus into prison here. And, or excuse me, Peter and John, they threw them into prison because they were preaching about Jesus and specifically about Jesus' resurrection. When it says resurrection from the dead, it's re- referring to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Hey, dead men don't rise, okay? And they're preaching this about Jesus. And so the religious leaders, not happy about this at all, decide they throw them into prison. We'll deal with this tomorrow is basically what they're saying here. This is persecution because of the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we're starting to see it for the first time. Now, it doesn't mean that it might not have been happening in some other form in some other way, but Luke is actually chronicling this and putting this in, and we're going to see this plays out over and over and over. But why? Why were they persecuted? Well, we see three things that show up in the book of Acts at different times, two in this passage and another that just shows up, and I want to just share them with you. The first is this. They preached that Jesus was the Messiah. Everyone in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day was looking for the Messiah. The Pharisees, they were actually, their job was to be among the people, and they were all together looking for Messiah. The Sadducees were still looking for Messiah, but they had kind of like turned their thinking. They had changed their philosophy, and they were thinking, well, maybe this is not a literal person that's coming. Maybe this is like a new age that's coming, and it's going to happen, you know, uh, sometime. But they were all looking for something that they could call Messiah. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He declares himself Messiah. He declares himself equal with God as well. You remember John chapter 14? You trust in God, trust also in me. I mean, outside of his little circle of disciples, that's blasphemy, you know, to a religious leader. Jesus declares that. But then the disciples start going around and saying, this this is the one. This is the Messiah. Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends up in heaven, and now they are doubling down hard on this message of Jesus being the Messiah. That gets them in a lot of trouble. You see, the religious leaders, they saw themselves as the, they were the protectors of this whole religious system. And so for these disciples to claim that, no, Jesus was the Messiah, or this, this carpenter, Jesus, to declare himself the Messiah, That obviously did not fit in well with them at all, and they rejected that hard. So preaching that Jesus was Messiah was the first thing. Here's the second thing, to suggest that one needs to be saved. Notice at the end of this passage in chapter 11 and 12, two different times we get this Jesus being the only way for salvation or to be saved type of language. If Jesus is the only way and these religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, It is as if these disciples are saying, you don't have salvation. Jesus is the only way. And this would rile them up. We see this actually, this theme over and over and over, coming against because of the claiming of Jesus being the way to salvation or the need to be saved. These religious leaders, they would have been like, we're fine. We don't have any need for salvation. We're good. We're right with God. In fact, our position of authority proves that we are right with God. They would have looked at the commoners, the poor people, and said, they're the ones that not, are not right with God. Look at their circumstances in life. Jesus comes along and says, I don't care anything about those circumstances like that. That doesn't dictate. And he would offer himself 
And then the disciples picked that up and said, it is through Jesus that we find salvation. And then this other one, to claim to be a follower of Jesus. We actually see this, not in this passage, but we'll see this throughout the book of Acts and, and later on in Paul's letters, that to claim to be a follower of Jesus was big. Now, we have 2,000 years. We have a long, I mean, we have a, you and I were born into a nation where we could claim that we are followers of Jesus Christ just fine, right? We're not getting thrown into prison for it. But you have to understand, when they would claim that they are followers of Jesus, it's not just that they were saying, I want to follow Jesus, but they were seen as also rejecting a big part of their Jewish heritage that they grew up with when they claimed Jesus. And so that was a big deal, and persecution came with that as well. Now, when I look at these today and I try to kind of draw uh, what is persecution today, I can go around and tell just about anybody. I'll go to my gym and tell anybody, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, right? There's some people that could care less about Jesus Christ, right? You've got those people in your life. I could tell them I'm a follower, no problem. Nobody's coming back. Nobody's persecuting me, not in these terms at, at all, right? But I'm trying to think, what is a parallel today? Jesus, remember, says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you remember that? Those are strong, strong words. Here we got Jesus, who we would describe, and we were right, that he loves everyone. For God so loved the world, we see that through the person of Jesus Christ. Yet, Jesus was very clear, there's one way. There's one way to know the Father. There's one way, and it is through Jesus Christ. This is probably the most parallel of these things of persecution that we might face in our day and age, is when we claim that Jesus Christ is the only way. Now, one of the scary questions that we ever get asked as Christians is when somebody, and, and the talk shows love it, is to bring a pastor or somebody, a Christian, and ask them, aren't there other ways that people can get to heaven? Is, is Christianity the only way? And it's not that we're scared because we don't know the right answer, right? You probably all could line up and you could quote the verse that I just used. But what are we nervous about? What happens after we verbalize that answer? We know that right away there might be a labeling of narrow-minded, maybe arrogant. Uh, it could go on. I don't know what it is. But here's Jesus who's declaring this, and his disciples are picking up on it and running with it. And we see it's a major part of their persecution. Now listen, I'm not inviting you to go pick fights with, with people today. You don't need to walk down the road and just say to somebody, you know, you're, you're really blowing it. Jesus Christ is the only way. That's probably not the best avenue in. Building relationships and, and those type of things are the best way. But in the end, understanding our theology is the same as the words of Christ and the understanding of the disciples in Acts, that Jesus is the way and there is a need for salvation as well. Here's what they're not persecuted for. They're not persecuted for their Christian values. They're not persecuted for going and loving and blessing and serving people. They're not persecuted because they want to have a marriage that flourishes and they stay together with one another and not divorce. Or they're, they're not persecuted because of these things that we'd say are kind of core Christian values, things that we see God's word teaching us as how to live. We don't see that throughout the book of Acts. 
In fact, in some ways, we actually find the Christian values that they're living out, they actually transform culture. And we see the Roman Empire starts to adopt some Christian cultures. Now, they won't use that title, but they start to adopt things. The way orphans are cared for by the end of the Roman Empire, guess who started that? It's Christian. It was the church that started to care for orphans. Before that, I think I've told you this in the past, in the Roman Empire, if you didn't want your baby, you just put your baby out on the side of the road and they died. Technically, you didn't murder them. You know, they had a chance to live. They just didn't make it. That was a common practice. The church said, no way. So the church started to transform things because of their Christian culture. But sharing the name of Christ got them in trouble. Here's the second thing that we see in this passage, in that, in that second paragraph there, is how did you do this, really, would be the question. Well, Peter got to answer this. He says, then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answered this. Listen to the answer. Leaders of the people and elders we're being exam- are we being examined today because something good was done for a sick person, a good deed that healed him? This is interesting logic he's using. If so, then you and all the people of Israel need to know that this man stands healthy before you because of the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. This is what he's saying there. Hey, are we called together? Are you actually calling us because we did something good? We healed somebody and he's walking now? Is that actually why we're called? Hey, good, if it is. This is great because we wanted to tell you as well, we didn't have a chance earlier, it's because of the name of Jesus Christ that this happened. I mean, can you see Peter, like he is leveraging this opportunity to once again share about Jesus. How does he do this? Like how did Peter keep getting in these situations where he comes up with these amazing responses in speeches or sermons or whatever you want to call them? How does he do it? Like Peter must just be so skilled in his conversation, like just how he's able to talk. Now, some of you know the Gospels, and you go, nope, that ain't it, right? Peter put his foot in his mouth all the time. That's not it. Well, he must be so learned, and he must have such a grasp of the Scriptures so well that he could just argue in any way, shape, or form with any question because he knows the Scriptures so well. That is, that's not it either. How does he do it? Listen to how he does it. You just read it. Then Peter, inspired by who? The Holy Spirit. You remember in the first chapter, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Listen, if you're still today, as we're walking through seven weeks in this series, if you're still saying, look, I can't share Jesus. I can't speak those things. I'm nervous about this. I'm scared about this. I'm fearful here. What if they ask me this? What are these things? Listen, I'm telling you straight up. You have not bought into the idea that the Holy Spirit works on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is available to empower you to do these things. I mean, listen, already, you know what Peter's been a part of already? He's spoken languages. He didn't even know what they were. He's healed a man, and he stood before large religious leaders, very learned religious leaders, and he's argued eloquently about Jesus Christ. And if you look back on each of those, you're going to see a common theme. Luke is very clear about it. It's through the Holy Spirit that this happened, which means you and I can do the same. Through the Holy Spirit, we can go out and we can do something we would never do on our own. And so let's strip away, let's throw away these, these I don't have an answer, I, I'm afraid if I get asked a question, and walk out and trust the Holy Spirit. You receive power when the Holy Spirit, you know that, right? 
It is through Jesus. They declare that it's through the name of Jesus. And when they say the name of Jesus in the book of Acts, what they mean is it is through the authority given by Jesus that we do these type of things, right? It is like if I send you to the store to buy something and I say, hey, here's the church credit card. Would you go buy whatever for this church event? That is a form of me giving you the authority to go use the church credit card. Is that okay, Jim Bethune? He's watching from home. I don't know. So we'll talk about that later. It's me giving you authority to go buy that on behalf of the church, right? Jesus has given them power and authority. He already says that, right? It's given to you. And then he says, now go. Go and make disciples. So when it says in the name of Jesus this happened, is by the authority that Jesus has offered that we are able to go and to do these things through Jesus. And it reminds me of this passage. This man was transformed. He was able to go into the temple and start worshiping again. But when he went into the temple, and I don't know how long it had been since he had been in there, like he already spoke about Jesus. How much did this guy know about Jesus that he didn't just learn? And yet he goes and talks in the temple already. Jesus is all about transformation, all about transformation. Listen, whoever you are, wherever you're at, whatever you're thinking about God, whatever you're thinking about yourself, Jesus is all about transformation, wanting to change you. In fact, Jesus loves you so much that he wants to change you. And I know that there's always the the thought of find somebody who doesn't want to change you kind of thing. And I understand what they're getting at when they say those things in relationships. But listen, you don't want a Savior that doesn't want to change you. Or else you didn't have a reason for a Savior in the first place. But when we find a Savior, Jesus loves you so much that he'll receive you just as you are today. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years. You probably need to be received as you are today again by Christ. He'll do it in a heartbeat. But he loves you so much, he says, now let's go and let's change and let's be new. Why do we push you for things even like a discipleship class or other areas? Because we want to see transformation happen in your life. Now, God uses the church and classes and relationships and those type of things, but it all dials back to the core. Jesus is about transformation. Listen, some of you I know, you've got, you've got kind of a, a, a secret, hidden kind of thing that you wrestle with and deal with and struggle with every day, day in and out. And you've just probably come to the decision that this is just me. It's just what it's going to be, right? Jesus wants to transform you. Or maybe you've come to the the conclusion now after seven weeks of Acts, like, I just can't share my faith. That's just not me. You're wrong. Jesus wants to transform you to be an incredible vessel for sharing you. I just can't speak life into people and bless people. People sometimes annoy me, and so I just can't do that. You know what? Jesus wants to transform you to where you fall in love with people, even people you don't really know much about. It's all about transformation. And that's what we've seen here. Finally, let me share with you uh, briefly this interesting passage. That It's a popular passage. You might have known it. In fact, sometimes it gets hijacked and used on, like, greeting cards and things like that. And, and of course, they'll strip away the Jesus part. But it's this, it's this part in chapter 11 and 12, specifically the, the beginning. This Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. He has become the cornerstone. Luke's wanting us to know that Jesus is the cornerstone. I was thinking about this passage. I don't know a lot about building, 
right? I certainly don't know much about building with, I know nothing about building with stone, right? But I did build a wall once at a former church that we built. Our, our pastor decided we'd save some money and uh, we would build a, a wall around five acres of property. And uh, I had never built a wall before. Um, if you know what the hot boy is, you know, in a wall building, that means I'm the one that just kept throwing the, the bags of concrete and the water in the mixer and kept mixing all day long, put it in the wheelbarrow, take it to the people who had some skill set in putting up the wall and then going back, right? That's all I did. But I do know that every once in a while we would open up one of the pallets of concrete blocks and there would be a block that was chipped or cracked, you know, broken in half. And what did we do with those? We didn't bring out the Elmer's glue or anything like that. You just threw them to the side. You know, they were just thrown in a pile, and you went on, right? And it's just as understood that there's going to be a certain percentage of those stones you just throw away or those concrete blocks you throw away and you build a wall. That was all new information. Listen, that is what Luke is getting at here. He's saying the builders rejected this stone. The builders didn't look at Jesus and say, hey, he's not a good cornerstone. We'll put him somewhere else in the wall. They never considered Jesus as a cornerstone to begin with. They just looked at him and said, this ain't going to work on this wall, and they chucked it. Who's the builders? Listen, this is the religious leaders of the day. Like, God actually called on these religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, to be among the people, to bless the people. And you can say it this way. Their job was to usher the kingdom of heaven into these people's lives, and they weren't doing it. They're blessing one another, they're helping one another, they're helping themselves, but they certainly weren't offering the kingdom to the people. So why when Jesus came out on the Sermon on the Mount and said, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, destitute, bothered by life, because what? Yours is what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is available even to you is what Jesus is preaching. That is not what the religious leaders were sharing. So these religious leaders who were the builders, they looked at what Jesus was offering. They looked at the person of Jesus and said, not even worth being in this wall or this building or whatever the building would be. Yet despite that, Jesus ushered the kingdom into the lives of people. And you know what it eventually made him? I wouldn't even say eventually. It was there from the beginning. The cornerstone. The thing that the rest of the building would be built off of, it was Christ. God had great hope, I think, in the role the Pharisees and the religious leaders could play. They didn't play it. And Jesus became the cornerstone for that building, the cornerstone for you and for I as well. Something reject, rejects is a central figure. Jesus was a central figure, rejected. We talked about salvation being found only in Jesus. That's what Cornerstone would apply to. But listen to this. You've got to understand what's happening here. If Jesus is not the Cornerstone, it's not Christianity. Christianity can't be built our Christian faith with Jesus being over here on the side somewhere else. We kind of build something on our own, and Jesus is over here. Jesus has to be the thing that everything is built off of. That is what Luke is trying to share with us. Jesus is this cornerstone as he puts this speech from Peter in there. Here's a takeaway, a couple questions. The first one would pertain to that. It's just this. What's the cornerstone of your life? 
what would you say is that central thing that everything else is built off of? We could come up with some really good answers. I mean, answers that, like, from, uh, from you know, really a, a common perspective, or, you know, maybe from our world perspective, these sound good. There's nothing wrong with them. My family, my spouse, you know, those are things, they're so significant. When we say things, I'll do anything for my family, and I believe you. I'll do anything for my kids, right? And I believe you. I would, too. But, you know, as wonderful and as so significant as our spouse and our kids, they still don't make great cornerstones, certainly not compared to Jesus. And so when Jesus finds his spot as the cornerstone, man, family and life built off of this and other things that you might have thought of, they fall in place really nicely. What's a cornerstone of your life? How do you find that out? Well, you might want to consider where does your time and your energy go as well? Where does that devotion or priority go also? Here's another question. Are you living out salvation in Jesus alone? Listen, Christians, don't be too quick to answer that. I know right away most of you who are believers, you have a, a, a salvation account, a story, a time you said a prayer. It would be easy to say, yep, I am. I said a prayer. I went to camp. I, you know. But do we live out our faith in Christ alone? Or is Christ kind of there, important, but so is my accumulation of stuff? Or so is my self-worth? Or so is my, and the list can go on. Your salvation comes from Christ. The growing of, you, of that comes from Christ. That's our starting point. And that's who it has to be alone. And the beautiful thing is Christ builds in and through all the other good things. And we start to see the things that we need to reject and send away in our life as well. But only when Christ is at the center. So I want to lead you in prayer. And I want to give you just a moment while we're praying to maybe do a little bit of refocusing business with God if you need it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for a passage where... Lord, we, we do get the understanding that there is a, there is a key message that, that Lord, uh, that you are the only way. That we are pointing people, we're ushering people to one way, and it is you. One way to know God. One way to have, find our way to heaven. One way to live out the fullness of life here. One way through you. Father, if there be a Christian in this room who has uttered that message with their mouth and they're not living it out with their life and they're sending a mixed message to others who they want to see know you, Father, would right now, would we just say, Lord, I confess that. Forgive me. Would we just do a little business with you on that? And then, Father, after the forgive me, Lord, now, Lord, would you use me? Sync up my words and my actions that I might be a witness. Lord, uh, thank you that the power of the Holy Spirit works in our life, Lord, that helps us to do something we could never do on our own. And, Lord, there might just be one person this morning that needs to know, step out, just step out in a, a step of faith and trust that the Holy Spirit will be at work in you. And you'll be fine. You'll be fine in the Holy Spirit. But just step forward. And then, Lord, would we just reevaluate? Where are you at? Are you the cornerstone? Are we living out that way? Are we letting everything be built off of you? I just want to give you just a moment. If you want to just have your own quiet prayer time with God, just work off of anything 
God might have spoke to you about this morning. for any commitment that we're just making, any rededication, any confession that we're just making, any even cry out to say, Lord, help me. Would the Holy Spirit just manifest itself in each one of those prayers? We pray in your son's name. Amen. So like I said, good passage this week to go and really look through. We're going to uh, do a little bit more in chapter four next week. Uh, but there's a lot.